Hello, listeners. Welcome to Educational Landscapes, Lessons from Leaders. On today's episode, we are going to learn from Liz Walker. Welcome to the show, Liz. Thank you so much. To get us going, what is your educational leadership title or titles? All right. Well, I'm going to apologize in advance for the many acronyms, but I'll spell them out at least once. So I am um, in the Department of Behavioral, Social and Health Education Sciences or BSHES at the Rollins School of Public Health. And there I have two main educational roles. Um, the first is the director of the Office of Evidence-Based Learning, which is an office in our department that is focused on supporting instructors in their teaching and um, contributing to the um, pedagogical scholarship in public health specifically. And then my other role is the director of graduate studies for our master's of public health program. And in that role, um, I do a whole bunch of things, which I can get into further if you so desire. <laughs> I would love that. And I want to get a, a clarification before we get into your second role. In the first role, um, the educating of the teachers, is that the faculty only or it's also other public health educators for the it's office of... Yes, that's a great question. So it's um, focused now on instructors in our departments. That includes faculty, adjuncts, um, doctoral students when they do their teaching training and sometimes when they teach in our department. Yeah, it's focused on our, our instructors. All right. Thank you for that clarification. And now to um, the mouthful, Director Grad Studies, what do you do in that role? So in that role, I work very closely with our leadership team and chair and with our academic advisors to ensure that our MPH program runs out, rolls out smoothly. So that involves um, being part of the admissions process, um, recruitment activities. I work very closely with our instructors and um, our students. Um, and so there's a lot of different aspects that overlap all the time because we have our people that are being recruited we have our first year cohort we have our second year cohort and um getting prepared for them to get you know completed and graduated and but overall it's very challenging but also been a great experience so far that's wonderful i love as you said um that it engages so many different people, the administrative side, you know, the educators and the students. And I'm always fascinated with what recruitment looks like, like for a master's program. I am not involved in the on the ground recruitment. So at Rollins, we have an admissions team who does a lot of traveling and going to conferences and schools and things. Um, however, the academic advisors and I will do some virtual sessions, and there's also two in-person recruitment sessions, one in the fall and one in the spring, where um, applicants can come and meet us and learn about our program. So that's always fun to meet um, students who are applying and learn what they're interested in and what they want to do at Rollins. Um, so thankfully, that's the, the scope of my role with recruitment. <laughs> I know I appreciate, though, that, um, that opportunity, because I think about how when I applied to my different grad programs, it was like I sent an application out into the ether. <laughs> there was no opportunity to necessarily meet with the people and go, what are you doing? 
So I love that that's available in your program. And one of the fun things is that in the spring, it's we have the event is called Visit Emory. And so I came to Emory as an MPH student way back. But um, I vividly remember coming to visit Rollins for Visit Emory. So it's always fun to be there at Visit Emory, but on the other side, very much on the other side of things. That is awesome. That is awesome. So given these two relatively large roles that you have, um, what skills do you use in order to get the work done? It's uh, a lot of um, critical thinking, um, a lot of collaboration and teamwork, a lot of prioritizing and balancing and managing different tasks, degree to which I do that successfully. I mean, th everything gets done eventually, and I have wonderful people to work with, thankfully. Um, it can be overwhelming sometimes, but that's all right. Um, a lot of, I think it's also creativity, trying to be creative in meeting the students' needs and their and um, working with the students and engaging them in the process of both the um, scholarship of teaching and learning and in the MPH program, we try to uh, get input from our students and our students give us a lot of input as well. Um, on different aspects of our program. And so I, I enjoy the kind of creative process of trying to figure out how to um, work in their feedback and their contributions and, and have them be involved in the processes too. Love that, I love that. And building on what you said about, um, you have the opportunity to uh, do the Visit Emory, and now you are in these roles. I am very curious, what was your journey that led to these current roles? So it was kind of a winding journey. Um, I came to public health, I kind of fell into public health, as I like to say. Um, I was a history and biology double major in college. I should have realized that public health was where I needed to be because I did my history honors thesis on the influenza pandemic of 1819 or 1918-1919 in Great Britain. Little did I know that that actually would have had would have relevance to our current day. But um, after that, I taught middle school for a short time and got a master's in teaching. So teaching has always been a really core part of what I do and what I love. Um, and then after that, I went and worked in a neurology lab. Um, it was a basic sciences lab. I was dissecting rat brains. I was not good at it. I did not enjoy it. But I found public health because I started volunteering at an AIDS um, HIV AIDS service organization doing HIV testing and counseling. And so that led me to do an MPH at Rollins. And I knew I wanted to stay in academia, mainly to teach, but I also much more loved the research with people, not the research with rats. That was not, that was not a good fit for me. Okay. Uh, research with people, perfect. Um, and so I continued on in the PhD program in species. And then I did my postdoc with the FIRST program. Um, FIRST stands for Fellowships in Research and Science Teaching. So it had a, both a research component. Um, so I had a research mentor, um, Ben Druss, who I still work with. And um, so that was at Emory. 
And then I had a teaching mentor at Spelman. Um, shout out to Dr. Kara Bracky. She's amazing. Um, and that's how I got started doing scholarship of teaching and learning. Um, and then when I um, applied for it and was um, offered the position that I have now at NBC's, um, in my offer letter was, um, it included the role with Office of Evidence-Based Learning. At that point, it was assistant director. And I didn't even know anything about it. I didn't know the department had, was considering opening this, doing this office. And it was like, I was so excited. It was like the thing that I didn't know I needed. And I was just like, this is, this is perfect. It's not often that you hear of offer letters, including a very clear, you know, office education component. There's the teaching we have to do as academics, but for that, yeah. oh yeah, that sounds amazing. It was amazing. Yeah, definitely amazing. So as you reflect on your journey um, and where you're at now with these two, two roles, what do you wish you knew before stepping into your roles? Um, that is, that's a really good question. So I think the hardest thing for me to learn is balancing all of the different pieces that you have going on as a faculty member. So I have my, like, I do mental health research and evaluation. I have teaching. I had OEBL, Office of Evidence-Based Learning. Now I have the um, DGS role for the MPH program. And so like how that all gets done is really hard. And so people did tell me just to like give myself grace and to like go into it. Um, and, and people, I think some of the, th the things that thing is, is that these are some of the things that people told me, like, it's going to take you time to get used to the DGS position. Like I knew that, but it's very different. Like knowing it in the abstract and then going through an entire year of the cycle and being like, oh, wow, that, that, okay, now I know what I'm in for. <laughs> but thankfully, um, our department is extremely collaborative and supportive, as is the other. It's been fun to work with the DGSs in the other departments and with our student affairs office and student engagement and our enrollment services office and our admissions team. So like all of, I have all of these people who I can just email or call or whatever. And I know they're there to help with whatever random question or issue that I'm running into. So that's something that um, I'm extremely grateful for is the collaboration and support. And it's, it's really a team effort. I love that. I love that. I think you're right. It's so many times people will try and warn you and be like, it'll be like this. And you're like, sure, sure, sure. And then in the middle of it, you're like, oh, they weren't kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But I, I, I love that uh, you've got that team dynamic so that, as you said, when you're going, oh, my gosh, what do I need to do? You can turn to somebody and go, what have you done? Yes, for yeah. sure. For sure. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, so given that you've got these multiple roles that you've got to juggle, what continuing professional development do you do if you find time to keep up with the needs of your roles? Um, it is sometimes hard to find time, but I think it is extremely 
helpful and important to do continuing um, professional development. So, you know, it ranges from faculty career development series offered at Rollins. Um, the I like the Center for Faculty Development and Excellence trainings. They're amazing. Um, I also go to some conferences when I can. So we have the Assist Association of Schools and Programs of Public Health does an annual meeting each year. And so that was, that's always been really um, beneficial when I'm able to go to that. So those are the most common things that I do. A lot of reading too, reading books and articles again, when I can. <laughs> and yes, this is why I added that, that little caveat. Yeah. So as you think and reflect on your journey to date, uh, what advice would you give someone interested in doing the same types of roles that you have? Um, so I think for Office of Evidence-Based Learning, one thing that's very unique is that our department does support our work. So they support some of my salary to be able to do that work, which is very unusual. And we do have some um, funds that we can use to support graduate research assistants and get, you know, focus groups transcribed and things like that. Um, but even before then, my first foray into um, scholarship of teaching and learning, um, my men teaching mentor and I just, we decided we wanted to try out this project and, and see what contributed to um, undergrad psychology students' um, attitudes and confidence in learning statistics. So I would, my advice is to try to, um, even if it's not an area, because um, scholarship of teaching and learning, there isn't a lot of funding for it. There's not always a lot of support, but um, I'm very thank I'm very grateful that I had the support from my teaching mentor to try it out. And it was something that I really enjoyed. And so it was worth it for me to put in that time. Um, and you have to be kind of creative to how you can fit it in with everything else. But um, I think it is really worth doing. There's a lot to be learned from the different things we try out in our classrooms. Um, Another piece of advice, again, is to give yourself grace. You can't learn everything all at once and it'll take some time and to make those relationships and, you know, lean on the other people who have either done it before or going through it with you. Because um, that is crucial. Indeed, indeed. Wise words, wise words. Thank you. So as you think about, um, clearly you have a passion for education. So how do you support or expand education in your profession or through your roles? So part of the thing, part of the way that I try to support education or expand it uh, through my roles is a lot of it is through the um, scholarship of teaching and learning work that I do for public health um, in medicine and nursing and, you know, basic sciences even, there's a lot of scholarship of teaching and learning. There's a lot of pedagogical scholarship um, that goes back a long time. There are numerous journals in each of the fields, but in public health, um, it's a much smaller, newer area of research. And so we have one main journal and um, it's definitely growing, which is exciting, but it's still pretty, um, pretty new. So 
Um, part of my work is to contribute to the body of knowledge and extend the pedagogical scholarship and, and disseminate what we're learning. So um, through presentations at conferences and we've done workshops um, and a webinar for uh, the Society for Public Health Education um, and then publishing articles to try to get these get what we're learning out farther to extend to other people in the field. I love that. Now that you've said that about the, you know, subtle in different fields, do you have a sense of why it has taken longer for public health to kind of embrace subtle? I'm not really sure. I mean, part of it may be that the focus um, from a lot of faculty in public health um, is on their research and their research programs. And so it, even if you're teaching, you know, your, your energy is for teaching your class or your classes, and there's not always that time to do the social research. Um, so that may be part of it. Um, but I, I, I'm not really sure, but I'm, I'm excited that over the past five, 10 years that it has started expanding more. Indeed, indeed. And I, I think that's great, especially for those who, you know, come after you and are learning out of the OEBL. Wait, did mm -hmm. I get that? There we go. I'm like acronyms. Um, because then, as you said, there are these opportunities and they're growing for people to engage and be involved and possibly even inform their other institutions that they go to that there's, you know, this type of opportunity. So that's great. Great, great. So as you think about all the things you've done, um, what would you say contributed to your biggest successes thus far? I'm sure you will not be surprised at my answer. My biggest successes are my colleagues and collaborators and students. Um, one of the things that I'm most proud of with our social work is that we've had students engaged in all of the projects that we've done or almost all of the projects that we've done. So, and not just as participants, yes, we've done surveys with them and, and focus groups and such, but um, we have had master students, doctoral students and postdoc work with us um, to collect data, analyze data, um, contribute to manuscripts and presentations. Um, and so that that's one of the things that I, I'm, most proud of is their engagement in producing this knowledge that we're sharing with others because it's really they're the ones who are in the co courses um, who are receiving this education and so it means a lot to me for them to be engaged in the in the research of it too. I love that and you know because you hear people talking about co-creating things uh, you know co-designing and all of that but sometimes it seems very um abstract it's like oh it sounds great but how does it actually look so I'm curious in your case how were you able to get the students to like buy in because you know they're also doing their program and then there's this extra thing that maybe they want to do yep mm -hmm. a big part of it is that we have funding to be able to pay them so we have positions that um, they can serve as graduate research assistants and we do have students who are very interested in higher ed and in education 
a lot of our recent work has really been around um, diversity, equity, and inclusion in our curriculum and our courses. So um, a lot of our students are very interested in DEI issues, social justice, um, health equity. And so that ties in well to our work as um, also. So but yes, I thought being able to pay them for their work, I feel is very important, um, but also um, gives them the, the space to be able to, you know, dedicate time to this work as well. So important. And and as you highlighted, I think also the, the alignment with their interests mm -hmm. uh, plays a big role. So yes, yes, yes. Sure. Mm -hmm. wonderful. Thank you. So recognizing, you know, as educators and learners, we're always learning and growing. Um, what would you say your biggest growth opportunities are right now? Um, I think I'm still figuring out how leadership fits me and how I fit into leadership and kind of, I, I have a much better, so I've been the, the director of graduate studies and the director of Office of Evidence-Based Learning for a year and a half now. Um, so I've learned a lot about how I approach leadership and I definitely see there is a lot of growth opportunity for growth to happen there. Um, so it's, it's been a very interesting process and, um, also an area for, uh, prof continuing professional development too. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And I'm going to throw this out there cause I'm always really curious based off of your experience you know, to date in those two roles, if somebody was to come to you and go, what does it mean to be an educational leader? What would your answer be right now? That is such a, that's such a good question. <laughs> I know, I'm like, oh, you, I mean, this is a good point. So take your time, take your time, but yeah. yeah. I think, um, Part of educational leadership involves kind of seeing um, the broader picture beyond just your classroom. So it, there's a lot there's a lot of important leadership that happens in the classroom. But even I think educational leadership is thinking about like the per, the program curriculum, um, how it fits in with the broader school systems, um, preparing our students to go out. We're a professional school, so um, we're mostly preparing students to go out to be public health practitioners and professionals. And so ensuring that they're getting what they need. Um, and with, with Office of Evidence-Based Learning, thinking about how the things we're trying out and working on and doing in our program can translate to other programs brought more broadly. Um, so I guess it, if I can try to make it a little succinct, educational leadership involves um, really thinking about all of the people engaged in different parts of education and thinking of the context um, and the broader scope of the curriculum. I love that because I think as you you highlighted, a lot of us who are educators, we, we zoom into that space that we're in. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, my course, I, I do all the things. And then when you have this educational leadership role, you're like, oh, wait, my course fits into this much larger context mm -hmm. and sphere and how do I navigate that so thank you for sharing your yeah and another thing that I think a lot about is supporting instructors and how to make you know support their professional development journey as teachers and 
you know, I have my personal teaching philosophy, but I almost feel like now there's like, I get to think about the teaching philosophy of our department. Um, And so like, how do we, you know, what are our values in teaching and education as a, as a department and how do we show that across instructors? Um, So that's been something that's been really interesting to consider. That is awesome. As a fellow educator, that geeked me out a little, but we'll we'll, we'll focus in. <laughs> so, as you you continue to reflect on the different things you've done, um, what do you say you love most about your work and what you do? Um. So I love the people, mm-hmm. of course, the students, my colleagues, the collaborators, and I also love getting to geek out on teaching. <laughs> and research like it's a melding of both of the things I really love to do so there's something really satisfying of digging into some good qualitative data about a course evaluate you know evaluation of a course not and not talking about end of term course evaluations but like you know doing a a a study of our um a particular teaching uh strategy and then how the students perceive it versus how the instructor perceived it because I always think that is always one of the most fascinating things where like oh we're gonna do this and they're gonna get this and then you ask them what you got out of it and it's like oh disconnect Hmm." (laughs) it's part of the fun of teaching there's always something new to learn and try out and it's like okay this didn't work let's try this other thing oh I read about this cool thing I want to try it let's let's see how it goes Absolutely. Tell me what did, did you like that? Did you not? <laughs> <laughs> and why didn't you like it or you yeah, liked yeah. it? So I yes. know in the future where the qualitative comes in. And I'm I'm with you. Some of that um does excite me, even though quant was where I came from. Like getting that richness of why is just it's it's awesome as an educator. So I yes. get it. I get it. Yeah. So overall. Reflecting on your experiences to date, what would you say are your passions around education right now? Um, I um, have gotten really into um, different aspects of the program, of our MPH program uh, that have been, that impact um, both faculty and student experience, but aren't necessarily just the courses. So um, we have, we piloted this past year, a guest speaker thank you program where instructors could invite one or two guest speakers to their class from outside the Emory community in order to engage community and diverse voices in the classroom. And um, the department provided gift cards as thank you um, for their time and their contributions to the classroom. And so I did an eva- I helped roll that out um, and did an evaluation of it. And so that was really, I got, I really nerded out on that report. It was a lot of fun. Um, so things like that, um, we're doing some work around faculty mentoring of MPH students. So thinking about, I think really a lot, the, one of the themes of this conversation and just a lot of my work is um, in the classroom, in our department, how students and faculty and staff really create community 
together. So it's like everybody has to contribute to this inclusive learning community. And so how we do that in the classroom, how we do that through mentoring. And and those are some of the fun things that I've been working on recently. That are a little outside of the teaching that I'm not, I mean, I'm still, I still love, I love my students. I love my classes, but um, these other kinds of things have been a little different and quite interesting to think about. And I, I, I think I appreciate that, you know, as you said, when you were talking about your, your definition of what is, what does it mean to be an educational leader is that ability to zoom in and zoom out. So yes, you love what's happening in, inside your course, but you also are like, what's happening in the larger context that my course is in? So, yeah. I get the geeking out. I get it. I get it. <laughs> so those were my core questions for you that were education and work related, but I do recognize you are more than your career. So what are some things you do outside of work to help you maintain joy in life and practice? I love that question so much. Um, some of the things I do are spending time with my family. So um, my husband and I have two boys and they um, can drive me nuts, but also are absolutely amazing humans and make me laugh all the time. And just, it's been wonderful as a teacher to see how they discover and view the world. And I think that's kept, um, joy and excitement and energy in my life that I wouldn't have otherwise. So that's one thing that's wonderful. Um, I like, I need to be outside in nature. Like, I feel like I need to hike every so often and not, just, not like huge long hikes, but like go for a couple miles and just be in the forest for a little bit. That really helps reset me. Um, and uh, reading, I love to read. I read all the time. Um, books for pleasure. I remember during my graduate school, I I didn't read as many books for fun because, you know, you just get swamped with everything. But I was after graduate school, I was like, no, that can never happen again. I need I always have to be have a book that I'm reading. Um, and I do yoga, which is another thing that just kind of resets me and 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 gives me joy, too. So. I think those are the main things. Awesome. I'm always curious when people read for fun, what is your genre or genres? Well, I have always loved fantasy um, ever since I was a kid. One of the books I recently read was The Adventures of Amina El Sarafi, which was just amazing. Okay. Okay. I'm always curious. I'm always curious. I love that. I love that. So those were my core questions for you for today. But before I let you go, any last words of wisdom for aspiring educators or education leaders? Oof. Um, I, I think that sometimes in academia in particular, um, research can be prioritized over teaching, but there are definitely people around who love teaching and that is really like part of their passion and of why they do what they do. And so for me, like finding those people has been so important, um, especially for those days where you're like, 
the class didn't work or, you know, I didn't have enough time to really give them the feedback I wanted or whatever, like having your, your support system of like-minded people um, who can nerd out about teaching and share ideas and um, just be there um, has been really important. So I guess find your people. I think that is a wonderful place to end on that words of wisdom, find your people. And uh, so we are very thankful we found you for today's episode. Thank you again for your time, Liz. Thank you.